You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Thanks for tuning in to the Southern Way Hunting Podcast on the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network. I'm your host, Josh Raley, and on this show you'll hear hunting tactics, stories, and strategies from hunters across the South. Our aim is to sharpen our skills as hunters and outdoorsmen, become more efficient and effective in pursuit of our craft, and even have a little fun while we're at it. And of course, no matter the pursuit, we focus on doing things the Southern Way. Welcome to episode number two of the Southern Way Hunting Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Josh Raley, and I am so fired up this week. Man, the reception that episode one got. Guys, I could not I could not have expected that. Like, I thought for sure, I knew there was a large audience for a, a Southern-based hunting podcast. What I did not expect was an outpouring of your support. I did not expect the DMs that I got. I did not expect people you know, reaching out, just saying, hey, we're so fired up to hear that there's still some Southern hunting content coming out or some new Southern hunting content coming out. So I just want to kick off this episode, guys, by saying thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm going to do my absolute best to keep the content rolling and as high of a quality as absolutely possible. And along those lines, I have an awesome episode. I'm talking with Stephen Cordaro from right here in my home state of Georgia. And I wanted to get Stephen on for, for a couple of different reasons. Number one, uh, the guy is a killer. Like, you just go to his Instagram page, and you can see the dude kills stuff, and uh, he's really successful at it. But number two, he also does a, a decent amount of travel hunting. He's getting ready to head west, and this fall, he's going to be headed to the Midwest to hunt there. And so I just felt like there was a lot that we could learn from him, not only about hunting here in the South, but taking what we know from hunting here in the South, which, in my opinion, the Southeast... They're the hardest whitetails in the country to hunt. I've hunted all around, and I don't think anybody can propose a more difficult area to hunt whitetails. So Stephen gets it done here at home. He gets it done in the Midwest. And uh, yeah, just a great episode. We talk a little bit about traveling, some of the things that you definitely need to have when you're traveling out of state. And then we get into some early season talk here in the Southeast. Now, there are not a lot of guys that I know of who are just automatic when it comes to killing big bucks here in the early season. So we talk about some of the difficulties 
what makes it tough, and how to make targeted strikes on public land here in the early season. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, joining me today is Mr. Stephen Cordaro from Georgia. Stephen, what's going on, man? It's going. How are you doing today, Josh? Doing pretty well. Uh, do you go by Steven or Steve? Which one do you prefer? Steven? Uh, I introduce myself as Steven. If people take to Steve, I'm okay with it. So. I, I like Steven, man, because it's got the PH, right? I feel like exactly. I, I, I don't even know how I would go about shortening that. <laughs> you know? Yeah, some people try. You know? yeah. <laughs> I've, I've gotten all sorts of uh, interesting uh, pronunciations over the years, but yeah, I'm good with either one. Awesome. Awesome. Well, man, I, uh, I, I heard you on the origins of the hunt podcast. I was already familiar with you though, because I, I had seen you on Instagram. Um, I, when I saw your page and I saw the stuff that you're doing, I thought me and this guy have a couple things in common. So I need to get him on the show, right? We've got, uh, it appears we've got our faith in common. We both live in Georgia. We both love returning to or heading to the Midwest or going on some, some DIY public land trips. And I was like, I need to get this guy on to pick his brain, learn a little bit more about him and how he's doing it. Because, uh, you know, it looks like you're having some success, but it also just looks like you're having a ton of fun, Mm -hmm. like heading out there and doing that kind of stuff. So where did you begin this journey? And we'll come back to maybe some earlier hunting stuff, but where did you begin this journey of, you know, what is now hunt solo public and your, you know, your drive to, to get out of town, not just to new places, but doing it by yourself yeah i well i think it it stems back to um i've always felt closest to god by experiencing god through creation so um anytime you know my dad took me hunting or if i went uh hunting at i've I've had really good family friends from church that have acreage that they've been generous enough to take me to to hunt over the years and I just developed a a major passion for deer hunting and then just being out there being alone being still no concrete no cars driving by no people talking it's just you and nature and that alone is enough for me like if I go out and I don't see a deer or I don't even have an opportunity um, I always enjoy my time out there so for me, it's just kind of turned into, um, uh, that's been a major piece, but then obviously once you get some experience and you start killing some pretty decent animals, it just lights the fire under your butt and you're, you're looking for the next one. You're, you you can go down the rabbit hole with this stuff. So that's kind of when I got into archery. And then as I've gotten older, um, you know, working and stuff shift schedule, I'm currently on like a swing shift schedule where I'm work nights and weekends and holidays and days and their 12 hour shifts. So it's like, I don't, my social life has kind of gone down the drain and I, I should prioritize <laughs> it more, but like when you've got a random Tuesday off of work, it just makes sense to uh, go and, you know, go hunt or do something like that. Cause everyone else is kind of working. you've got free time. And so that's when I started really going solo and it's not, I honestly think you can accomplish more in groups. Like if you've got a hunting club or if you've got a group of friends that can kind of go together, I think you can have probably more fun and maybe even more success, but you also got to find people that are on your level that love it as much as you do. And I just haven't really found anybody that's that loves hunting as much as I do and who wants to be out there and who wants to, um, you know, prioritize it. So I would say that, you know, the, the obsession part comes down to it. Like that kind of is what drives me is I just love adventure. I love new places. 
I don't think I'll ever purchase a property and just have, you know, my hundred acres where I put my food plots in and I do this or that and maybe grow a good deer every once in a while. It's like, I want to go see the millions of acres that are out there in America that we all have access to hunt. Like you can go to right. a new place every time and have a new experience. So I'm, I'm really passionate about the adventure aspect of it, but there's also, there's quality animals out there to be had that, that beat Georgia hands down. Yeah, man. I, there are several things you said there that I think are, are huge. Number one, that whole difficulty of finding people that are on your level and, and I don't think you mean that just from a hunting skill perspective, but from, like you mentioned, a passion perspective. And one of the things that I have found with, with hunting partners, if you don't find somebody with the same positive, uh, optimistic, upbeat mindset, you're going to have a miserable hunt. Like mm-hmm. if you, the, I've been on several hunting trips where I'm with a buddy or with a family member or something like that. And things are not going well. We're not seeing a lot of deer. So the decision is to leave early, cut our trip halfway short or, Oh, I got to leave now. Like it's, that blows my mind to put all that work in and then get there and give up because, you know, things weren't what you thought they were going to be. Yeah. And man, if you don't have the right positive person or three with you in your group, that can make it really, really tough. I also want to come back to this passion for the adventure side of it, man. I think a lot of folks who start to think about, well, if you're going out to the Midwest or, you know, you're chasing bucks in the Midwest, you're, there, you're just there for the big animals. Or if you're heading out west to Colorado, you're just there for the big, you know, you're just looking for trophies. You're not, you know, enjoying it for what it is. But it sounds to me like the adventure is really the trophy for you and the animal is, is kind of the icing on the cake. Is that right? Yeah, because you, I mean, you can, well, it, it's hard to say. So, I mean, a, a big trophy animal is probably what gets you up in the morning thinking, man, I right. might have my opportunity at something awesome today. But then the experience of being out there, being being in a new spot in nature with mountains, whatever the view is, uh, wondering what's on that next ridge. If I, well, What if I walk over there down to that creek bed? You know, what does it look like down there? Like, I just... I love to traverse. And so I, I bought like a little Garmin inReach mini satellite communicator this past year, which has actually made me feel a lot more comfortable going out by myself when I'm going uh, deep into the mountains or the back country, because you, if you're not going to have cell service, so I can at least send my wife a text message, you know, saying I'm on, saying I'm okay. Or somebody can track my location if I break a leg or something like that. So, um, and for me, it's also a big, a big thing is overcoming fear. Like I think a lot of people have a great fear of being alone and of being alone deep in the mountains where no one is there to help, where you can't just call a friend or call the police or call an ambulance. You can't, you know, like you're, you're kind of out there by yourself and it truly forces you to trust, to trust your own gut, your own instincts, to grow your instincts, to, um, and honestly trust God as well. Like your, your whole relationship with God, I think just blossoms when you're out there by yourself and that's all you got really is yourself and God. So it's a, it's a humbling and it's a, an amazing experience to just be able to do that in different places. Yeah, for sure. And that really resonates with me that, that whole fear piece, right? Like I grew up uh, as a kid and I did not have a good sense of direction when I was younger and I would just get lost all the time. It just, it just always felt like I was getting lost. 
And, uh, you know, people at our hunting camp would pick on me about it, that kind of thing. And, you know, it wasn't so much the fear of being alone because I loved going out there by myself. It was the fear of being truly, I guess maybe truly alone or cut off, right? Like you get out there Mm -hmm. and you can't get to help and then what, you know? And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I remember with the, with the advent of, you know, something like Onyx coming out. I was living in Louisiana when I first found Onyx and that gave me a ton more confidence to kind of start venturing out into some of these swamps, you know, where luckily we had cell service. So I didn't need something like the inReach or something like that. Um, but yeah, man, that's huge. Being able to trust, uh, your equipment too. I feel like, mm-hmm. I mean, that's gotta be huge for you. I'm curious. What are some of the pieces? Like if somebody's listening to this and they're like, Hey, I want to start doing this kind of stuff, but there are things that are holding me back. Part of that is I'm, I'm worried about getting out there and breaking a leg or equipment failures, that kind of stuff. What's some equipment that you've found is like a necessity for doing the kind of travel hunting that you do? Yeah. So, and then that depends on, um, I could go two routes this way. I, so for, for like mountain hunting, um, I'll start with mountain hunting and then I'll kind of go over to like out of state deer hunting and I'll try and make it short and sweet. But for mountain hunting, I think it, your fitness is the most important thing. So like making right. sure you can, you know, lift, lift a decent amount of weight. You can walk a lot of miles. You've got good, um, you know, good, I guess, uh, resting heart rates. You're, you're focusing on your cardio and your strength training. So that's first and foremost, before anything, um, before anything equipment wise, but when going to equipment, you obviously need, you know, a good vehicle that you trust and probably some four wheel drive. And, um, and then it, it comes down to your weapon of choice, which for me is archery or a rifle, depending on what I'm doing. And then, um, you know, your pack, your boots, your sleeping gear. I find just like the, like if you're doing a backpack hunt, you really need a good quality sleeping bag and sleeping system, whether that's a tent or a hammock um, for this archery elk hunt that I'm going to do. I, I just recently got a new pack from uh, XO Outdoors, K4 5000. I've got a product review on my YouTube, kind of um, just introducing the bag. And I actually, I love it. It's, it's really good. It sits good on your hips. So having like a good fitting bag that you can pack a lot of weight. Um, it's got a meat shelf as well. So you also got to be able to pack an animal out of the woods if right. you kill one solo. So I'm my biggest fear is not being physically fit enough to do that. You know, if I kill an elk three to five, 10 miles deep in Colorado and I have to get it out of there piece by piece, you know, that's going to be that, that could kill you (laughs) if you're not physically prepared for it. Like you could, you could really be screwed. So fitness and then gear is always a secondary, but gear is very important because a lot of people got a lot of guys go home early because their gear fails or they get blisters or, you know, whatever, because they haven't been putting in the time, breaking in their equipment, practicing with their equipment. And I I just think that's, that's way more important than the actual equipment is the amount of time that you've spent learning that equipment and learning how to like utilize it and, you know, putting in the repetitions, you know, just the day in and day out work, I think is what is key there. Yeah. Um, that's huge, man. That, that repetition piece, it, there's nothing worse than getting out and having to learn your kit on the ground. Right. Yeah. That's not um, good at all. 
Yeah, so that's like mountain hunting. I'd say is is yeah, gear is very important. You wanna you wanna test it out. You wanna go on some some backpacks, some hikes, and stuff. Get it going that way. And then for for whitetail, I've really um, I've honed into saddle hunting and just being mobile. So I'm using uh, sticks. I've got the XOP single sticks. I have the tethered Phantom saddle with the Predator platform. I I know Sitka gear is very expensive, but it saved my butt in Kansas, man. It was like single digits, and I had on the elevated bibs and jacket, the the fanatic, and it saved me, man. Like it was it was it was yeah. so cold, and I'm not used to that in Georgia that I, I was still able to do my all day sits, you know, have a couple hand warmers and stuff like that. But I'd, I'd say gear and clothing is super important, and with Sitka, it's like you're you're form fitted, but yet you're as warm as you've ever been in that clothing. And it enables you to sit all day, which enabled me to see a lot more deer and to have more encounters um, by being comfortable. So you really, you want to find stuff that's good quality. Um, If price is an issue, um, you can still find good stuff out there. That's not necessarily name brand, but you've got to spend some time dialing in your kit to yourself and, um, what, what your, your expectations are. So, um, but yeah, it can help you. Gear can definitely help you stay out there longer and get, get those opportunities. Yeah. I, so I went on a a turkey hunt this past year to Iowa. And when I was on this hunt, I was preparing for the hunt and I, it's supposed to be, you know, highs in the mid ish 60s, 70, getting up into the seventies during the day. And by the time I got up there, the weather had changed. And they were going to get temperatures in the 20s, and some days low or highs were in the 30s. I mean, really cold temperatures. We had a big snowstorm kind of blew through. All of this was a surprise. And on the budget side of things, I, I was wearing Huntworth camo. And I had some of their newer stuff that's made with graphene, and it's meant to keep you really, really warm. And, man, it, it saved me. It's just like mm-hmm. you're saying. Like, it was a – if I hadn't had that gear, I would not have been able to turkey hunt in my normal – you know, what would have been my, my turkey kit the year before even. I would not mm-hmm. have been able to, to stick it out. I'm really interested about this fitness piece. This is something that I have started to really focus on this year. And a lot of what motivated me was I don't want to keep making decisions based on my fitness level. Right. I don't want to hear a turkey gobble and think, I can't get there in time. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. or I don't want to know where I need to be for a whitetail, but think to myself, man, I don't know that I can make it out in the dark, you know, because of my fitness level. So I've started to really focus a lot more on that. You mentioned cardio and strength training. Can you talk about, you know, maybe what's some of the stuff that you're doing to, uh, to really focus on that fitness and really hone in for hunting, right? I mean, you can be a power lifter all day long. It's not going to help you in the backcountry. You know right. what I mean? It, maybe it'll help you when you're packing out. But for the most part, that's not the kind of fitness that you need. Can you talk to us a little about what you're doing to make sure that your body is, you know, tuned in and ready? Yeah. um, Recently, with the new pack and the new boots, I've been rucking around my neighborhood. So I'm that guy out there with hiking boots and shorts and a heavy looking pack on just walking around the neighborhood right now. So I'm, I'm adding... And here, here's my, I'll, I'll go ahead and just say my problem with fitness in the past has been, I get too, I get too motivated and I'd start way too, I go in too deep and too heavy. And I start with way too many 
repetitions, weight, whatever it may be, um, or too, too many miles and I get injured. So like I used to, I used to do long distance running and I ended up overtraining, getting a stress fracture in my, uh, left shin and it basically took me out of any kind of cardiovascular fitness for like a whole year because I'm like, because I went too hard and I didn't ramp up to that kind of mileage slow enough. So if you're, if you're going from couch and you want to be, you know, Cameron Haynes superhero, it's not going to happen overnight. You really got to like, like start small, start walking, like just walk around your block break in some good tennis shoes, you know, cause you can get stress fractures anywhere, your feet. Just like if you start, if you go from zero to like overdoing it, like too fast, you're going to get hurt. So you really got to, you know, leave your ego at the door, so to speak, when it comes to um, pushing your, pushing yourself, like you, you want to push yourself and progress um, slowly over time, but don't overdo it. So right now I'm, I'm rucking around the neighborhood. I'm lifting, um, I'd, I'd kind of go between upper upper body and lower body. So I'll alternate those days. And then I'm shooting my bow every single day. So right now it's just kind of the lift, ruck, shoot mentality until after Colorado. And I've always enjoyed bodybuilding. So I kind of keep, I, I enjoy the weight training aspect. So I've got, you know, weights behind me here in the room. And I'm, I just enjoy being able to physically exert myself, you know, with the weights, it, it's good for my mental state. It's good for everything. So that's what I'm doing right now. But I, I think for, for packing in and backcountry type stuff, it's also good to go on like back, go on backpacking trips. Like me and my wife just went up to North Carolina. We did a 14 mile backpacking trip and I purposefully put like 60 or 70 pounds in my backpack so that, I didn't need all that gear. We were only doing like one night, but I was like, I want to weigh it down. I want to like get weight on my back and, and do this hike. And it was hard. It was difficult. Um, but it's good to go ahead and put in the paces, put in the miles. And then when you're, you know, miles deep in Colorado, hopefully you've built that fitness level up from training over time and packing around heavy weight. Um, so right now for, for the rucking, I started small, I started with like a, I've got adjustable dumbbells. So I started with like a 20 pound dumbbell in my backpack with some like pillows and stuff around it to kind of like center the weight and just, you know, 20 pound pack, break it in. And then I'm adding 2.5 pounds a day. So that doesn't sound like a lot, but like if you're, so I'm doing a 1.5 mile loop around my neighborhood. And if you add two and a half pounds to that every single day, you're going to be in that 70, 80, 90 pound range pretty fast. It's only going to be a few weeks, you know, so right. and I've got about six weeks to train. So I've got, I'm trying to just add weight slowly and do it every day and just build that muscle memory up and make sure that all your gear is just form fitted. So don't be afraid to be that guy walking around your neighborhood with, <laughs> with hiking <laughs> boots and a backpack. It's, it's good for you. Yeah. We've got a hill in our neighborhood and, uh, it, it's a, it's a super, super steep hill. And that has been like my training grounds, just up and down that thing, up and down that thing. And some neighbors had started to notice. And one day there was a guy and his wife, they were sitting on the tailgate of their truck, just hanging out one, one evening, you know? And yeah. I, I, I walked past them. I think it was like my fourth time past them. And the guy was like, man, you're my hero. <laughs> <You know? laughs> He's like, that's that hill is steep. That's no joke. So, but I, I think there's value not only in the fitness aspect, but when you push yourself like that, you start to know what your body is capable of. And you start to realize your boundaries, which you're, if you're on a backpacking trip in Colorado for elk, let's say, you need to know if, 
if 10 miles is too much for, like if you're 10 miles deep, you need to know if that's going to take you more than a day to, to accomplish that. Like you need to know that your body can either make that 10 miles out in a day if you have to or not. And, right. and if you can't do it, it's not to say you shouldn't go back there at all. You should just be very aware of right. where your body is going to start to break down. And if you're not pushing yourself, you just don't know. Right. You know, and that, and that I feel like is going to hinder you kind of in the long term. So, uh, well, man, let's talk a little bit about hunting here in Georgia. I grew up hunting in the deep South. I moved to, uh, I hunted Alabama. I hunted Louisiana. I hunted Georgia before I ever moved North. And, you know, so I was well acquainted with what we have around here for the most part. Um, then I went to Wisconsin and my eyes were opened to, uh, the glories of the rut and, mm. uh, and, and even early season up there, you know, with your, with being in ag country, deer just move differently. They move more predictably. Um, but when it comes to your hunting here in Georgia, I'm curious about your frame of mind because really you're, it's an early season game for you here before you start to kind of venture out. Uh, what does your early season strategy look like? It, it, it can be really tough here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's evolved. And I honestly don't know that I have it dialed yet. And that's the thing about hunting in Georgia. It's, it's so different in every region of the state and it's, it's difficult. There's it's, it's thick, it's nasty. It's um, you really, you kind of got to know what they're doing. And um, so late, late the past few years, I've, I've utilized trail cameras to, um, you know, either make a mock scrape on public land and just see what bucks are in the area, see what's cruising, um, and then utilizing the topography or funnels or pinch points. Um, and it's not like mountainous topography, but if you've got like an uh, edge where a swamp meets a hardwood, like that's always a, you know, a good area they'll like to cruise. Um, so yeah, I've kind of just had to dial in the tactics and I wouldn't say that I have it completely dialed at all. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of swinging and missing. So it's, it's been trial and error my whole hunting career. So to, to, to sit here and say that I've got, you know, a master plan at (laughs) killing deer in Georgia. I don't, you know, I haven't killed, I've killed, I've killed a few good ones in Georgia. Um, but I think my, my major edge is that I'm willing to spend long hours in one spot and sit there in a good ambush location. And if I don't see anything, I'm okay with it. Um, I'm, I'm willing to make it happen again. So, but you can do things that obviously will put, put things in your favor. So, um, for me now it's more, uh, I started putting out cellular trail cameras last year and you're kind of able to just monitor what's going on without having to be there and stink up the area with your scent or even you don't have to hunt as much either. Cause you're kind of, you know, what's going on. You've got a good idea for what deer are in the area and then you can utilize you know, weather fronts and stuff like that to give you, just to give you that, that better edge. So, um, I'm trying to get to the point where I just don't feel the need to go in as much and I, I need to be more strategic about when I go in and where I go in. But for now it's, it's trail cameras, weather fronts, you know, food sources. And then obviously the pre rut is a really good time. Um, the biggest deer I killed in Georgia with my bow is Halloween morning. So, um, that's not really preseason, but you know, October is a pretty good time frame to be bow hunting and you can get out there in October, 
before the gun season comes in. So that's always nice. Yeah, for sure. For sure. When it comes to, you know, when I think Georgia and I think hunting in the South, betting locations, possible betting locations are all over the place. Yeah. Uh, food sources, really, especially in the early season, they're everywhere. I mean, it, it's literally the deer doesn't even have to get out of his bed to eat. Um, yeah. are, are there specific food sources that you're trying to key on or specific uh, bedding tendencies that you're trying to key in on? Or are you noticing just a lot of random movement and you're just trying to put yourself in kind of those those travel corridors where uh, you're going to catch those deer if they're in a general area, they're going to pass through this point. Yeah, I'd, I'd say mainly the travel corridors. Uh, like you said, there's food everywhere. There's bedding everywhere. I've, I've seen deer bed in just the most random places right. ever. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, why would you be here? Um, so it's, it's so hard to key in on that kind of stuff early season. So I am mainly looking for, um, you know, those, those, those pinch points, those travel corridors where there's, where it's just tore up with trails or you've got, you know, an area going between two bodies of water and you just, you can see the trails they are there. You know that you're putting yourself in a good spot. And as long as you're not over pressuring that area or, and you're playing the wind to your advantage, um, you've at least got a chance to, to catch one on their feet. So, um, yeah, I don't know that that's the best big buck killing tactic for preseason. I think there's, um, there's probably better ways to do it, but I also, I want to limit the amount that I'm doing like preseason scouting and stuff too. Like I, I went in there a couple weeks ago, um, to a couple different properties and, you know, I'm just doing a quick speed session where I'm going through, I'm putting trail cameras in historical areas where I've had good, um, movement, but it's more, it's kind of just setting the stage for that October pre-rut time frame in my mind because like you said there's a shift like i'll i won't get a whole lot of move i haven't gotten hardly any movement on my cameras at all in august and i put them out about a week ago and i'm just like i've got some raccoons a couple of couple of does here and there but like no bucks no nothing but then at the end of um september it's like a little a light switch flips on and they're all of a sudden like the, the tail end of september these bucks are back in that area and there's going to be probably three to five of them, I would assume. And maybe some that I've never seen and they're all starting to move in. They're all getting ready. They're all, they're hitting mock scrapes and stuff like that. So I'll, I'll get more activity on the cameras in September for sure. And it gives me the chance to kind of sit back and, and dial in my plan a little better instead of just taking stabs in the dark. So I'll probably, I'll probably be less aggressive on the preseason, early season this year, and I'll really be focusing on that elk hunt, and I'll just kind of keep an eye on those cameras because if when the time's right, you kind of got to hit. Like if you got a buck in daylight coming, you know, through an area several times or hitting a scrape several times, like you you got to move, you got to strike while the iron's hot. So I'm gonna try and be more patient this year and stay out of the woods and let my cameras do the work for me. Um, but I might still do a couple of sits here and there, just keep them low, low impact. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot to say about strategic patience when it comes to hunting, especially when you hunt an area where a season comes in relatively early, right? It's September 9th this year for us here. Um, when you 
get out there too early and you either burn yourself out. We talked about this off air. You either burn yourself out, you burn your spots out, you burn your family out, you burn your boss out, you know, taking time if you're, <laughs> if you're trying to squeeze a day in here and there uh, or maybe even take some days off of work. You can really um, find your, your gas tank, so to speak, when it comes to all those different areas of family and work and obligations. You can find your gas tank on empty real quick when now the best hunting is in front of you and you're, you're tapped out. You know, right. you don't have a lot of other options. I really liked what you said a minute ago about you're willing to spend uh, a good bit of time in a location, just put in the hours there in a spot that you know is going to be good because I equate hunting here in the South a lot of times, if you're not in ag country, to a lot of what the guys do who are hunting big woods in, say, Pennsylvania or even, you know, part of the north parts of the Northeast where – they find a good spot and they'll put in some time there. I mean, they'll mm-hmm. sit multiple days and maybe not see a deer. Um, and but I really feel like you got to give it that because, um, and you know, I get to talk a lot of people, talk to a lot of people doing these podcasts. And you know, when you've got bucks in the early season that are on a three day pattern, and they're going to be there for three days and then they're going to disappear. You know, they're going to be on this oak tree for five days and then they're going to disappear again. Mm-hmm. Um, that can be really hard if you're trying to be super aggressive and super mobile. So when you say you're willing to put in the hours, what kind of time are you putting in on a spot, you know, let's say mid-September when you're not real sure what's in the area? Yeah, so mid-September, I September in general, I typically do not hunt mornings at all. I just don't like... I don't, I'm not going to go fumble around in the darkness and, you know, just bust through an area with a headlamp on that early in the season. I just feel like your, your odds, your percentages are not in your favor to be doing all that quite yet. And, and the bucks aren't, aren't cruising like they will be. So you're better off with morning sits probably and later on in October to start doing that. But I do, I'll do evenings and it doesn't have to be a ton of time. Like if you, the last two hours in the day are our prime time for evenings in September. Like you'll catch deer coming out to hit some white Oak acorns or just, you know, they'll, as you get further along in September, they start, it seems like their movement starts to pick up a little more. Um, you get, you start to get a little pre-rut action. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not plugging all day sits in September. That's for sure. But, um, in Georgia, I'm, two to three hours, you know, you want to get out there and not be rushing. You don't want to be rushing into the stand and sweating and, you know, just like you don't, you don't want to feel flustered. So, and it's easy to get feel flustered when you're walking in 95 degree heat with mosquitoes buzzing around your ears and stuff. So it's, right. it's you just want to take your time walking and be as quiet as possible. Um, so give yourself plenty of time. So if you leave in the afternoon at two and you get set up by three thirty, and then, you know, sit, three hours or so, or, or, you know, however, however long, but that's about what I'm doing. Just a few hours in the afternoon and just taking my time getting in there, observing sign on the way in, maybe pulling a trail camera card. So, um, it's also a good, you know, a good time to get some sits in and do a, a little bit of scouting, but I try and just be as minimal impact as possible and not go walking around everywhere. Yeah. So, when it comes to food sources, yeah, I've, I've heard you mention white oaks a couple of times. Is that pretty much where your game is as far as, like, what you are going to key in on? You're, you're really uh, hanging your hat on those white oaks? Yeah, so you definitely want to hopefully find some of those dropping because that's what they prefer. They're not going to 
they're not going to touch food plots or anything. Like if you got, if you're hunting public and there's a neighboring property with uh, food plots or something, they're not even going to touch those until later on after some frosts and stuff come through. So it's, it's really their preferred food source. Like even people right. in ag country will say like when those white, well, those white oaks are dropping, they'll be hitting those until they're gone and then they'll go back to agriculture. Um, right. So it's, it's, it seems to be their, their number one natural food source is the white oak acorns that they can't resist. So if you yeah. find a hot white oak tree with good sign and tracks around and stuff, that would be a really good place to key in on for early season. Yeah, and I, I found for that early season time frame when I, you know, there may be a lot of white oaks dropping, but if you find a white oak with like a couple of smaller, you know, early, you know, in mid-September, in, in September, you're not going to find those big aggressive rubs, but if you're if you go in and you find a couple of rubs, you know, two, three, around a white oak that's dropping, you better sit that thing this afternoon, right. uh, because it'll it'll shock you because I've I've hung trail cameras on it. And it's like there's you know two or three rubs in the area, and you hang a trail camera and boom, there's a whole bachelor group of, yeah. of bucks in there using it like right now. I made that mistake last year, never went and picked up the camera until after season, and I was like, man. I could have sat here on any given September afternoon and even into early October and had a really good hunt. But, Dang. yeah, it's, it's just one of those things. I just never made it back out because all of my eggs were in the Midwest basket, right, because uh, I was heading uh, to the Midwest in November, so I'm trying to save all that time uh, for, for that trip. You've started to play the Midwest game uh, mm-hmm. and have dabbled, and I've seen some videos where uh, I believe Kansas you had some – some really, really good encounters. So talk to me about what prompted you to start uh, making that trip to the Midwest and, you know, how it's gone, maybe how your strategy differs. Yeah. Um, So there's one of my good friends invited me to go up to his farm. His uncle owns farmland in Kentucky and he invited me to go up there and I said, yeah. And I just, we hunted corn soybeans in November in the rut and I was seeing deer um, and I shot my best deer to date um, on that farm the last day trailing a doe through this uh, this wooded funnel in between two cut cornfields shot a big big nine pointer and I was like man that is a hammer of a deer like the deer (laughs) up there were just big bodied they're all munching on like corn soybeans like just incredible food sources and there's not as many places for them to hide, you know, there's, right. there's not as many, you know, trees or wooded sections. And even the further out West you go, it's even more so like when I went to Kansas, it was like Kentucky on steroids. So I'll, I'll backtrack to, to Kentucky. So after that experience, I was like, this is cool. I want to start coming up here more. There's bigger deer. They're, they're more frequent. They have better food and they're easier to hunt because you can hunt field edges and and I'll get into the tactics there uh, in a second. But, um, Kentucky, I went back up the next year, hunted public land and shot a big 11 pointer on day two, um, on public land, but it had private ag fields around and he was cruising a thick area and a Creek bottom. So if you can find these thick pockets with agriculture around, like sit in those thick funnels and just watch bucks walk by you. <laughs> it's yeah. like, so it's, it's so much easier than Georgia hunting. So that's when I was like, okay, if Kentucky's this good, I bet these other States out West are even better. Started hearing about Kansas, seeing the deer people were killing in Kansas. I put in for Kansas, got drawn the first time 
um, last year, went out there for a 10 day rut hunt and almost killed a 100, like 150s, just brute of a 10 pointer, like just giant. So that was a very, very sad, sad experience because he was coming in on a string. I was, I had, I had corn out in front of me and then in between me and the corn was a CRP. So like a little strip of CRP. And then I had like two thick little wood lots, doe bedding areas, and then a thin little tree line and some drainage ditches and stuff. And I was just sitting that thin little tree line and these bucks every single day, I sat that same property for like seven days straight because new deer would come through that CRP check scent checking those doe bedding areas and like you were saying those those later dates in november it was like november 12th through november it was like right up until before thanksgiving so i hunted that 10 day stretch and i saw some monster deer that were out of bow range and this one back to the buck he comes down the pipe i'm at full draw 15 yards broadside i'm thinking i'm about to smoke a Kansas giant. This, this is about to be <laughs> awesome. And I'm saddle hunting. And when I release my arrow, um, it basically like my bowstring was pressed up against my saddle bridge and that little bit of side tension on my bowstring completely derailed the bowstring from both cams when I released mm. and so the arrow goes fizzling off, somehow hits the deer in the hind quarter at 15 yards and just runs off with a lighted knock and it's butt, you know, basically. Um, and I'm just like, Oh my gosh, like I couldn't believe what had happened, you know? And I look down to knock another arrow and realize my bowstring's not even on my bow. I'm trying to figure out what just happened. So it was like a nightmare experience. I ended up getting, um, I, I went and got my bow fixed the next day. I backed out that, that evening and, I went back and grid searched the place, just hoping that maybe I hit femoral artery or something like that. But um, I ended up seeing another good 10-pointer a couple days later. Didn't get an opportunity at him. But it, it, it just showed me that, like, Kansas and, like, any kind of farmland, like, there's just huge – they're huge deer, and they have – like they'll just walk across an, an open field. Like I, the day I got to Kansas, I, I had been driving all night through the night after like a night shift. Um, and my first like hour of daylight in Kansas, I look out in this cornfield, there's 150 class giant eight pointer, just like cruising down the middle of this cornfield. I'm like, what is going on? Like, where am I? This is <laughs> so it's, it's just, it's a different style of hunting. And like, I guess for tactics, like you can, you can put yourself on a, on a tree line on agriculture and you'll probably get a chance. If you sit there all day, like that's another thing is sit all day. Like they're moving, like they're, when they're running, they're just cruising everywhere and you're going to see so much action. And if you're, if you're in a good funnel area and there's food around and there's does around, you will get an opportunity. If you put in the time and you sit sun up to sundown and you do that 10 days straight, like you're going to get an opportunity, I promise. Yeah. <laughs> so you don't have to be some expert. You just got to put in time and put in time on those, on those key areas. Yeah. And what, what makes something like a key area for you? Like when you are maybe, uh, I'm, I'm guessing you're probably not driving to do a lot of in-person scouting up there. I'm guessing most of your scouting is going to be, um, you know, e-scouting heading into the season. Then you get there and you start to see what it, what it really looks like on the ground. What are the kind of, factors that go into what you consider like a key area 
Okay. Um, I do all my scouting. I have base map, which is, I guess, similar to Onyx. It's a good, good mapping software. I'm not, um, sponsored by them or anything, but base map, you get all 50 States. So that's why that's what put, turned me on to base map is it's like 35 bucks a year and you get all 50 States. You can put all the, all the layers you want on that map, um, for, you know, to scout to your heart's content. So that's why I went with base map over on X, uh, pricing and it did everything I wanted it to, but I'll, I'll look at base maps for hours and I'll just, I'll pick, if once I know where I'm going, let's say like with Wisconsin, I'll probably pick a small little town in Wisconsin that's out away from, um, you know, bigger cities that has decent public acreage around all within, you know, preferably an hour of wherever I plan to stay. Because if you're going to do an out of state trip, it's going to be cold in the Midwest. So, you, I mean, camping's, doable but I'd, I'd like to have like a like for kansas i did a cheap airbnb it was like 40 bucks a night it was just like a little condo and it had you nice. know a bed a shower a kitchenette you know and i didn't i just would go there and sleep there and get up and um and go back to hunting but um yeah sorry i got on a ramble where, where were we with the yeah we're, we were talking factors that that kind of make something a key area for you, like what it is that okay. you're looking for specifically. But I do want to mention just briefly that yeah. cheap Airbnb or a cheap hotel room, or for me, I've got a small camper. The difference between sleeping in your car or sleeping in a tent on the ground and having either a camper or a small hotel or a cheap condo, like, man, a hot shower, like yeah. that'll, that'll change your life. Sleeping with a heater on next to you, yeah. That'll change the game when you're yeah. when you're hunting in the Midwest because, boy, if you get cold at night and you've got to try to go sit on a deer stand, you're not elk hunting, right? You got to go try to sit in a tree stand. You will have a tough time warming up if it's if you get to a certain point of cold. And for me, once I get there, uh, it's it, it's hard. It's hard to get yeah. my get get warm again and get where I where I feel like I can sit and have a productive sit. But we're talking about the key factors, like what you're looking for when you're specifically looking at those maps. Right. So yeah, base map, and um, I'm looking at like uh, so I look at water sources a lot. Um, I, I usually start around a water source, so I'll look at like a creek, a creek running down the middle of a piece of public or walk-in hunter area or whatever. And then I'll, I'll look around, I'll see like, okay, where are the converging like tree lines and wood pockets? Where, where do they all converge? Where do they all converge around water? Um, does it look like they're going to be using this to travel? And I know, you know, big deer, they like cover. They like a high stem count. They feel safe as long as they've got some security cover close by, um, if you listen to John Eber hard at all, that's the word <laughs> he says, security cover, security cover, security cover all, all the time. And he's, right. he's killed, you know, giant deer in every state. And so, and he's got a really good point. Like you're gonna, you're gonna catch that buck slipping down that tree line on the field edge more than likely, more than likely than walking out in the middle of the field. Now the rut can change a lot of things, but um, just those travel corridors, it tends to be Creek bottoms, you know, with some woods around a little bit of security cover, um, in between food sources. And for 
does, you, you really want to key in on those food sources because those the, the bucks are going to be chasing the does around or in the rut. You know, we all know this. And it's it's going to be just being in the right place at the right time in those travel corridors. So I'm looking at water sources um, that look like they lead from one area to another area that have kind of some woods around like stream creeks and streams. Really. I love Creek bottoms. That's probably one of my favorite, um, I guess, um, terrain features. Right. And the further, the further West you go, the more important that water piece becomes. Yeah. Like for sure. Um, you know, one of the things that you mentioned there, when as we talk about these converging, you know, tree lines or converging, you know, funnels or that kind of thing, that has become so critical for my rut hunting success. Uh, I was doing a podcast with Parker McDonald one time, and he talked about X marking the spot. And for him, that's what he's looking for. He's looking where it looks like, you know, edge types, cover types, creeks, uh, strips of timber, strips of CRP, whatever – where it all kind of comes together and makes an X or a star or, you know, that hub where everything starts to come together, that's where you want to be. And, um, you know, Tony Peterson, I've had him on the show a couple of times and he talks about, um, you know, trying to stack as many of those things in, in your favor as you can. And that's really how he rates sites during, you know, during the rut is, you know, I'm in this spot. Does it give me, six things going for me? Does it give me seven things going for me? Because for each new thing going for you and each new strip of cover or whatever that converges right there, your odds go up a little bit, right? So if you've got, you know, one buck's going to run this strip all day long or, or whatever during some point today. Well, if you've got six different things coming together and a buck's going to cruise down each one of them, boy, you might have some really high quality encounters, you know, throughout mm-hmm. that day. How do you begin to think about, you know, your... Um, like your standards when you're going from a state like Georgia to a state like Kansas or to a state like Kentucky, because realistically, the kind of deer you're shooting in Kentucky and Kansas are going to be hard to come by here in Georgia, unless you've got, there are good deer in Georgia. I want everybody to know that there are really good deer in Georgia, especially on some of these private ground pieces where people can kind of manage for bigger deer. We've got the genetics here. And if we mm-hmm. can get some age on them, our deer can be really big. But it's just not, it's just not the same in the Midwest. Right. So what, are your, what do your standards look like as a guy that sunk in money and time and vacation time, time away from family? You've got a lot invested in these trips. Um, to come back in empty-handed is hard, but it's also tough to spend your tag on a buck that you knew you probably could have killed in Georgia. Yeah, I've got a perfect example. So it was day one or two in Kansas. It was freezing cold. I was up in my saddle, beautiful morning. I do a rattling sequence, do some grunting. And this, uh, I look over the field behind me and there's like two does getting chased around by this. Uh, he was like, uh, he's a decent 10 pointer. He was, I want to say he was only two and a half though. Um, I ended up grunting him into the base of my tree and he was just, Mm. I could have smoked him all day long. Like he was just right there. Um, and I didn't even pick up my bow because as soon as I kind of, I I aged him, I realized, you know, that's, and it was, it was a 10 pointer, but not like a giant 10 pointer. It was just kind of like, you know, right at the ears, 10 pointer. And I was thinking, I was like, man, this, it's tempting, but I'm like, I didn't drive all the way to Kansas to shoot, you know, this, this young 10 pointer. So for me, 
I think a mature deer is what I'm after. I wouldn't necessarily say it's got to score a certain amount, but when you see like the difference between that deer and then the other deer that I took a shot at was just night and day. Like as soon as that, as soon as that big 10 pointer was coming down the pipe, I knew immediately when I saw that G3 sticking up 15 inches, I was like, (laughs) that's the deer I want to kill. And it's like, you kind of, and you got to grow. I don't, I think it's unrealistic for people to, you know, enforce standards on each other or on themselves that say, I have to shoot, you know, this caliber of deer. I got to shoot a one fifties or, you know, like shoot what gets you excited. Um, if, if you go out there and you, you get excited to kill that two and a half year old 10 pointer, kill them, like kill the deer. And then you will gradually grow and progress to a point where it's like, okay, that doesn't really do it for me anymore. Like you're going to, you're going to mature as a hunter. You're going to grow to the position where your standards might go a little higher when it comes to score or maybe maturity. Like you might see a crazy looking six pointer that's just ugly has an ugly rack, but you can tell he's like an eight year old deer. Like that's, that's a trophy in my book, you know? Um, so I'm looking for maturity mainly just big bodied rutted up bucks. That's kind of what gets me fired up. So, but yeah, we all like score. We all like, you know, pretty symmetrical antlers to put on the wall. So you got to decide what, what does it for you. So for me, um, I'm definitely trying to key in probably on more like one, one thirties plus, I would say, um, I'd love to sit, I'd love to be in that 150 club to say, yeah, that's what I'm, I'm targeting, but I haven't killed 150 inch deer. I don't think yet. So, um, the biggest one I killed in Kentucky was probably in the one forties. Um, right. and so, yeah, you hope the, the giant walks by, but don't, don't pass up a deer that's that you would be happy with at the end of the day, at the end of the week. If you're like, man, that was a good mature deer and it, it kind of checks the boxes for you. So I think for each person it's different. And for me, it's maturity. Um, and, and I've probably, I've made mistakes, you know, I've, I've misaged deer and shot in deer that were younger than I thought they were. Um, so don't beat yourself up too. If you end up shooting something that you're not happy with either. So, you know, stuff happens in right. the woods, but, um, yeah, it's kind of, it changes year to year, but I'm, I'm starting to key in on, uh, really wanting to take higher quality, higher age class, um, larger deer. And it seems like the Midwest really has, a higher abundance and more opportunity for that. Yeah, for sure. And, and the, the rutting activity there is just unlike what you're going to get here in the South. I mean, we can, compared to a lot of the South, Georgia can have a pretty, a pretty good rut. You know, you see pretty good rutting activity compared to a state like Alabama, where you just see this slow trickle of rutting behavior over, you know, a month time frame. but it's still nothing like a Kansas. It's still nothing like an Illinois or an Iowa or a Wisconsin or, you know, some of those other States. I I've gotten to the point personally where, and I experienced this last year on my hunt in Wisconsin where, you know, smaller bucks walk by and they still, I still, my heart gets pounding. I mean, it can be a little forky coming through and my heart is racing, but the encounter plus still having my tag in my pocket was a higher value to me than shooting that deer and getting to go home with that one in my cooler. And right. so that was a last year was really a growing experience for me because I passed some deer last year that I wouldn't have. And I even passed a deer <clears throat> that would have been my, my largest archery buck to date. 
Wow. Uh, before finally, you know, getting the deer that I did get. And, uh, man, just something about it. You know, it, it just something about it. And, I mean, realistically, hunting in Wisconsin and hunting in some of these really good states, you can have a 120-inch deer walk by you, and that's a two-year-old. And so you mm-hmm. have to come to grips with, am I really after older age class deer or am I really looking for a certain set of antlers? I mean, for me, even this year, a, a, a deer with a, a spread around his ears and eight points, he's getting shot. I don't care if he's two. I don't, you know, I, that's, just where, <laughs> yeah. that's just where personally I'm at. But I know yeah. that I, what I don't want to be shooting is that, you know, basket rack eight kind of thing right. where yeah. – I know that in the moment, yeah, it's cool. But then afterwards, I'm going to think, would it have been cooler to have an encounter with that deer and still have my tag in my pocket, you know, right. and still be able to be doing the hunt? So, um, so what what do your plans look like for this year, man? You've got you've got Colorado, and I've got to say, I think this is probably like you got in just in time because it's yeah. looking like this may be one of the last falls where Colorado is an over the counter over the counter tag. Was this an over the counter tag you bought? Yeah, I haven't okay. purchased it yet, but they okay. just went on sale. Um, but yeah, I'm planning over the counter, and yeah, like you said, it, it's starting to look like with just the amount of numbers and everything, and people going out there to hunt, that it, it's going to have to probably go to a lottery at some point. So I think the over the counter stuff, um, it may not be as accessible in the future, like you mentioned. So I, yeah, I did want to get out there. Um, while I can, while I'm young, while I don't have kids, um, while my fitness is decent. So I'm trying to key in on some of these, like, um, I guess more difficult mountain style hunts, like the sooner, the better, um, just to get experience in doing those and figure out where I want to start building points for future hunts. Um, so my expectations are extremely low. I've read horror stories of, you know, you're, you're going against people that are horse packing and you've got clogs, trailheads, like it's going to be a complete zoo out there from what I've read on the internet and heard, um, you know, the unit I'm going to is about a 10% success rate, which is actually fairly decent. Um, I didn't want to pick like the 20% success rate one because, you know, then you've got probably more private land and stuff. So I went with high public land, um, decent success rate, you know, just somewhere where if I put in the work and put in the effort, I should hopefully be able to maybe get an opportunity. Um, I've never hunted elk before. I wanted just to give it a try and see how it is. And, and the Rockies are beautiful in September. So it's like, I can, (laughs) if I get in there and somehow get into elk and come home with a tag in my pocket, but I got to experience elk hunting in the Rocky mountains, I'll be a happy camper and I will, I'm going to love it because I love just getting in the truck and driving to a new place and figure, trying to figure it out. But, um, just it's, it's kind of daunting and I'm really giving it my best effort because yeah, you all want, we all want success. We all want to go out to these places and it would be sweet to kill a giant six by six bull my very first time, you know, but is that likely going to happen? You know, probably not. You know, if I get, if I get an opportunity at a, illegal raghorn i'm gonna shoot that elk i'm gonna i'm gonna shoot a legal bull is what i'm out there for and um yeah i'm excited man it's it's gonna be an adventure so i've got the colorado elk and i'm still learning i'm still grabbing gear i'm still watching hours of youtube online scouting i'm just i'm putting everything i can into that hunt and then once i get back from that i'll start keying in on 
um, you know, some Georgia whitetail, maybe do North Georgia black bear, um, and then start really making a decision on, on the Midwestern type deer hunt. So I did not draw Kansas this year, which I was bummed about, but I'm like, well, maybe, maybe it's good to take a break from Kansas and, you know, let that, let that wound heal from last year <laughs> and, and focus on a new yeah. state. So I'm, I'm all, I'm all ears. If anybody wants to hit me up with any ideas, I, I posted on Instagram a little uh, poll and oh, there are a lot of, a lot of good states that came up. So, I mean, there's a lot of good over the counter areas and I'm open to any of them. You know, I've looked into Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, Missouri, Ohio's over the counter, Kentucky again. So, and I always, you know, try and keep a plan B in my pocket because, um, plan, plan for success. And then if you fail, Oh, well, you know, but if I went to, let's say Wisconsin and killed a giant deer on day two, and I've still got eight days left in my rut hunt. What's the next state that I can bounce over to buy an over the counter tag. So I, I always try and have like a plan B plan C and over prepare over plan. Like I'll plan three whole States. Yeah. <laughs> and I might not even get past state one. Like right. I had a grand plan last year. If I, if I tagged down Kansas, I was going to go through Missouri and then I was going to try Missouri. If I tagged out Missouri as well, I was going to hit Kentucky on the way back home. So for a 10 day trip, I had three States planned, but realistically you might not get past that first state, but it's good to have kind of like um, just a game plan of what would I do if I've got 10 days off of work and I, and I tag out early, like what you don't want to just go home, you know, like you can utilize that time to keep rut hunting somewhere. So I, I, I'm a planner, man. I over plan. I over, I just spend hours, um, on the, on the internet searching maps and looking at statistics and eventually you just got to make a decision. And that's where a lot of people it's paralysis analysis and they don't want to commit and just make a decision. So, uh, just go ahead pick your spots and, and get out there and go and, and hope for the best and, and don't, give up. I think that's the biggest thing is the discipline to just keep going. Even when you feel like all the, all the chips are falling against you, like nothing's going your way. You got to just keep going. So, yeah. um, <clears throat> yeah, I think one thing that, you know, you mentioned paralysis by analysis, right? I, I think a lot of guys can get into if they haven't done this before, it can be so easy to hype yourself up and to put so much pressure on it that it's like, I've got to find the one state and the one area and the one place, and it's all got to be perfect. And if you've not done it before, the best thing you can probably do is just pick somewhere. Mm-hmm. Find a place in the Midwest. I guarantee you, if you find public ground in the Midwest and you go out there in November, there's going to be a buck on that property that will make you super, super happy. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like there is going to be a deer there that will make you happy. You're going to see deer. If you commit to being mobile and finding sign, you're, you're probably going to get into some rutting action. You may not see the big buck that you're after, but you're probably going to get into some action and you're definitely going to learn a ton. So if you haven't done it yet, don't let that freak you out and cause you to freeze. Just get out there. Just go, Mm -hmm. just go do it once. Right. And, and next year we can build on that. You can shift, you can adjust, you learned a ton, uh, but you're not going to learn it until you get out there, man. You're not right. going to begin to figure it out till you, uh, till you put the work in and start doing it. But man, I'm like you. So last year in Wisconsin, I was like, okay, I'm going to hit Wisconsin. 
and then I'm going to kill a buck there, and then I'm going to head to Illinois, and then I'm going to kill a buck there, and then I'm either going to Missouri or Kentucky on my way home. So I, I had these like all all these plans, yeah. and uh, and then I was like, and then I'm going to be home in time to hunt the rut in Georgia, and so I'm going to do that too. You know, I mean, I was just I was all over it. Uh, and on day three, so the buck that I shot, he came in on day three, and uh, that evening got a shot at him. And I, dude, in my mind, I was already in my car driving. Like I mean, I'm all, I'm already on the way to Illinois. And yeah. I, I grazed the top of his back and oh. uh, didn't get him. I shot Dang. him again on day eight. I found I caught back up to the same buck, shot him again on day eight. Uh, so it ended up being this super cool story. But by the, time, cool. by the time you're at day eight and you had 14 days total plan and you know you got to make a full day drive home, it's kind of like, well, i got to figure out something to do with this deer tomorrow. I need to get him to a taxidermist. There's another day. Got to pack up all my stuff. You know, There's a half a day. Then I can get on the road. Um, so realistically my hunt was over, but man, if I'd yeah. gotten him on day three, that would have been, so that's kind of what I'm planning for this year. So I'm going somewhere yeah. else if, uh, if Wisconsin works out for me, but man, tell folks where, uh, where, where they can find you. I know you've got a YouTube channel, you've got an Instagram page and you're pretty active on both of them. Yeah. I, uh, uh, Instagram is at hunt underscore solo underscore public and, I started the page probably a year, a little over a year ago, and it's kind of blowing up and um, it's getting larger. And I, I mainly just focus on these out-of-state hunts and I've been getting into photography, videography, that kind of stuff. So I, I really enjoy self-filming, bringing a camera with me. Um, it adds a whole other dynamic to it. And I enjoy being able to tell the story and it's something that um, I've really enjoyed and so that kind of led me into my YouTube channel which is just hunt solo public those three words and I've got a Montana bear hunt on there and I've been doing like product reviews and stuff like that as well so that's where I'm at on the on the socials mainly um, and I am on Facebook awesome well folks go check out Steven and all his stuff he's he, like I said he's putting out some good stuff so man thanks for your time today I appreciate you coming on the show yes sir thanks for having me